Welcome to church. So glad you could join us, whether you're here in person, online, or maybe you're catching up on this a little bit later on. Uh, we will have time for questions again, and I've still got a few from last week that I didn't get to answer, um, but feel free to send some more. The link will be um, on a lot of those slides that you'll see. And uh, any that I don't cover uh, today and in the rest of these series, uh, I will record um, some answers and post them up where you can look at them later. All right, here we go. I wonder how your sense of meaning and purpose in your life survived over the last two years, when the last 730 days have basically been a blur, when things don't really feel like it's getting any better, and you wonder if you can go through another year of it. I wonder is what you lived for in 2019 still what you live for today. Just over 75 years ago, we celebrated, well, not celebrated, we commemorated the liberation of Auschwitz, the most infamous of Jewish death camps that the Nazis held there, and over, where over one and a half million Jews perished in that particular death camp. 75 years um, a psychiatrist pretty famous in the world uh, of psychiatry, his name is Viktor Frankl, was one of those who survived. And Viktor Frankl uh, explored the reason why some people under those awful conditions in a death camp seemed to have stayed strong as well as stayed kind and human, while others, on the one hand, might have shriveled and died, but others, worse, became collaborators they acted immorally in order to survive. Why? You have these two groups of people. Now, his conclusion is really interesting. It's exactly on topic today. And his conclusion is that it all had to do with meaning. And his quote there, you'll see from his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is this, striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. And he means man and woman. Uh, he found that those who stayed strong and kind had better and more unshakable meaning in their lives. Whereas those who shriveled or gave up or gave in morally or psychologically, well, they had attached meaning to things that crumbled when the world around them also crumbled. You see how important that is? So I wonder, how is your meaning? Would your meaning in life survive a holocaust? Did it even survive two years of covid well, we're going to examine this in two ways because there are really two ways that people today search for meaning, from the outside or from the inside. So you see, that's my first point. Firstly, from the outside, that is meaning in life has got to come from outside of ourselves. There's something greater, there's something more important that drives us, that gives us purpose, that we aim for, that we live for. Now, former generations would attach it to things like king and country. So you see the army recruitment ad from pre-World War I, do it for your king, do it for your country. It's a bit old-fashioned. Today, um, it'll be other things, though, outside of ourselves. There may be politics, or it may be social causes, environmental causes, or scientific advancement. Or if you're religious, it would be church, religion, mosque, or whatever it is. Now, for many uh, migrant families, and that's a lot of us here at SWEC, you'll know that meaning that's outside of ourselves often is found in family especially the, um, the next generation, you know, your children. So first-generation migrants, they come to this country, they work to the bone for the sake of their kids for a better future. Their primary driving force is their kids. 
And if this is uh, your meaning making, that it comes from outside of yourself, the, the words usually used are things like duty, yeah? Obligation, right? You're willing to put aside personal happiness out of duty and obligation because these things are bigger, more important than my personal happiness. I wonder if this is the way that you think about meaning. Unfortunately, though, we all know that this kind of meaning making has, well, has problems and, 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 and therefore has become a little bit less popular. I would say there's probably a big generational shift. Parents, particularly grandparents, will have had meaning attached to outside. Most of us probably wouldn't say this is us. And there's good reason why we've sort of shifted away from that as a society. And the reason is that people have become disillusioned, disappointed. I mean, these things that people live for, whether it's king or country, but politics, religion, even family. Here's the thing, right? They can't actually bear the weight of our expectations and our hopes. We've been let down by government. We've been let down by religion. Even the good social causes we're let down. If you're really pursuing environmental or social causes, you're going to be constantly frustrated at the inaction of people and government. Now, what about first-generation migrants? Well, we all know first-generation migrants who did everything for their children, only decades later to feel really let down by them. Not because their children didn't succeed. Many of them succeeded, but they succeeded and resented it. Or they succeeded, but have relationally distanced themselves from their parents. They've now lived their own lives, but these parents, first-generation migrants, are now retired, hardly have any language, lonely. And then all these years of suffering, they ask the question, what do I have to show for it? I wonder if you know people in that category. So now most people, they don't look outwards, what do they do? They turn inwards to find meaning. And you can see that from the military recruitment ads, how much has shifted in about 100 years. It used to be come fight for king and country, now it's do what you love. Because you can't find meaning in something outside of yourself, according to this way of thinking, so you've got to create your own meaning, yeah? So formerly the words were duty and obligation, now it's words like authenticity and happiness, yeah? It's do what you, makes you happy. Live for what makes you happy. As far back as Aristotle, as recently as the 14th Dalai Lama, they've all said things like meaning of life is to be happy. If you watch Netflix a little while ago, there was a lady called Marie Kondo, right, about uncluttering, and it's do what, what keep what sparks joy in you, okay? What, does, what are the things that sparks joy? So, for example, if your career makes you happy, well, live for that. Or it may be your hobby. Or for another person, it may be sex. Or marriage. Or maybe fitness. Or even those bigger things like religion and politics and social environmental causes. Well, if they make you happy, live for them. But here, here's the difference, though. Do it for you, not for them, ultimately. Do it for you because it makes you happy. Now, I, I'll wager that most people probably under the age of 40, this is this is what, actually, probably under the age of 50, I'd say, this is what we live for, right? It's meaning that comes from inside, and it's certainly attractive. It's certainly popular. But I want us to pause and think, because I think it has serious problems. And I'll give you three reasons why it has serious problems. Firstly, it's fragile. Secondly, it's antisocial. And thirdly, it's actually unlivable. What do I mean, fragile? Well, those meaning-making things we create 
tend to be even more fragile. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because they ultimately just depend on us. They're much more fragile than the bigger things, king and country, religion that's been around for thousands of years. No, meaning that we create are really finite and really fragile. In fact, Viktor Frankl, just to quote that psychiatrist, Holocaust survivor, he says that those who survived the camps almost universally had meanings that transcended themselves and their circumstances, right? They all had meaning that were much bigger than themselves. That's how they survived. Well, secondly, it's antisocial because if you're thinking about being authentic and it's personal happiness, if that's why you do things, then there's a problem with that, isn't it? Because it then makes every noble thing that you pursue ultimately motivated by selfishness. Do you kind of get what I mean? Like, Like, it's one thing to champion a social cause, like help the homeless for the sake of the homeless, but what if I told you that I champion social causes, help the homeless because it makes me happy? Ultimately, it's about happiness. All of a sudden, that's not so noble anymore, is it? But that's exactly what we're saying. If it actually comes out of the pursuit of happiness, then ultimately it's selfish. Also, here's the other thing. If we all individually live for our own happiness and our own authenticity, it's actually socially irresponsible. Someone in the throes of COVID over the last few months or years say, look, I will not wear a mask because it doesn't spark joy for me. I think most of us would react pretty negatively to that. Or what if I decide to have an affair or exploit third world workers in my company? Just generally live selfishly because it's out of my own meaning making. It's authentically me. It's pursuing happiness. You see what I mean? Most of us would have issues with that. But if you go consistently with this kind of thinking, well, who are you to criticize my own meaning making? Do you see what I mean? It's antisocial. Doesn't take into account others. And so lastly, it's actually unlivable. It's unlivable also because, hey, guess what? We're pretty bad at knowing what makes us happy, especially happiness in the long term, right? Like you're thinking about how many things that you realize only later on actually was painful in the short term, but actually was good in the long term. Um, there's been a study uh, about those who stayed in marriage versus those who divorced right, when things in marriage started to become difficult in the first few years of marriage. This study, quite comprehensive, studied all these couples, and they concluded quite maybe surprisingly that five years later, the vast majority who stayed married in spite of conflict, five years later were happier. The vast majority, we're looking at 80-something percent, were happier than those who divorced, right? Long-term happiness versus short-term happiness. Those of you who are forced to do piano lessons or violin lessons or Chinese school or learn a language when you were young, right? The majority, like not all of you, I know some people still look back and resented it, but the majority I talked to who are adults, especially those who, you know, were forced to go to Chinese school, they hated it then. Majority are actually really grateful that you can now speak a little bit of Chinese. Again, we're really bad at making judgments about happiness short and long term. Actually, Aristotle, if I can say it, and the Dalai Lama, at least when it came to their meaning of life being happiness, I think they're wrong. I think Viktor Frankl is, again, much more on the ball. He says this, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you try to catch it, the more it flies away. If you focus on other things, it'll come and sit on your shoulder. Like, I think we know that, right? 
if it's ultimately about chasing your own happiness or authenticity, whatever you call it, you're never going to find it. I think we can conclude, whether you're looking outside or inside, that the search for meaning, well, it's not that easy, right? Believe it or not, this is also the conclusion of an ancient teacher of the past in the Bible. The ancient teacher in a book called Ecclesiastes. Look what he says. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You feel the weight of that? And by the way, Ecclesiastes is all about this teacher in Israel who tried everything. Pleasure, work, success. He had everything. And his conclusion, it's meaningless. It's like chasing vapor. So where to from here? Where to from here? Well, again, like I said last week, I would love to invite you to consider Jesus. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, at least consider Jesus. Because I want to take you to the encounter that Johnny actually read out for us from um, the Gospel of John or John's biography of Jesus' life. And I want to suggest that this encounter with Jesus and this woman was actually all about meaning. It was all about the search for meaning. It was all about the disappointment and failure when you have false meanings and how Jesus offers a better one. So let's have a look at this encounter by the world. Now, I'm not going to go through it in detail. Um, you can follow along if you've got your Bibles or the digital Bibles that you might have on the app. I just want to say a few things. Firstly, I want to say there, is no, there are no accidents with Jesus. All right, you read, The more you read about Jesus, and I invite you to do that in the biographies of Jesus, um, you realize there are no accidents with Jesus. His encounter with this particular woman on that particular day, and every word that he spoke to her, everything was deliberate. Okay? See, he meets her, firstly, in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day in the Middle East. So he's thirsty, he needs a drink while he's waiting for his disciples. She's there, she comes to draw water. And he knows immediately that here is a woman who was desperate and longing for answers. And how he knows this and why he knows this is as soon as he sees her, he knows that she is the ultimate outsider, okay? She is the ultimate outsider. I mean, firstly, outsider in relation to him. He is Jewish and male. She is Samaritan and woman. Samaritans were a member of the hated race as far as Jews were concerned, and it's a patriarchal world, okay? So she's a woman, he's a man, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, outsider. But also, he could tell that she was an outsider even in her own Samaritan world. I mean, why was she alone, drawing water, hottest part of the day. Not with the other women who would come at dusk or dawn where it's a lot cooler. There's a reason for that. Jesus knows she's desperate. She's an outsider, but Jesus sees through all of that. He doesn't care about who she is because here's an opportunity to change her life. So he begins a conversation with her. Now, the conversation is where it gets confusing, right? Like, I wonder if we read it, when we read it earlier, did you get kind of like, where, where is this going? Right? What is this all about? Now, I've kind of tried to diagram it for you, just for all you, um, you know, people who like to think like this. But you've got here, um, firstly, he starts with a conversation about water. Okay, he, he, he requests water. 
But then he offers her living water, and then she misinterprets that. Um, Because living water, she thinks it means water on tap. And who wouldn't want water on tap, okay? Now, Jesus then clarifies, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean by water, living water, is eternal life or abundant life or meaningful life. And then we shift in conversation to be about husbands. Where'd that come from? Okay, she's had five husbands. Her current relationship is not with a husband. um, and, And that's what's going on there. And then it shifts again to be about worship. You notice that? Like water, husbands, worship. How does that even relate? Um, Firstly, it's, well, do Jews have it right where they worship? Do Samaritans have it right? And Jesus says, look, let's cut through all of that. True worship is something else altogether different. All right. Um, And he tells her that this is true worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And then we finish with a conversation about Jesus being the promised Messiah, Savior, King. Okay, have you made sense of it? It's hard to make sense of, right? What is going on here? Water, husbands, worship. Now, remember what I said right at the beginning of this encounter, Jesus doesn't do accidents. Every turn of conversation, whether he initiates or she does, is Jesus deliberately and very cleverly peeling away outer layers of this woman to reveal what's really going on in her heart. So here's my go at trying to explain it. She's come to draw water. But really, and Jesus sees this, what she's looking for is to quench a much deeper inner thirst that no water can quench. Her thirst is actually a thirst for meaning. Her thirst is a desire to be loved, to be valued, to belong. But she's gone looking in all the wrong places. See, the many men or ex-husbands that she's been with were all part of that search. They've not brought her happiness and meaning. They've actually made her more isolated and alone as she's shunned from her own society. See how water relates to husbands? But then Jesus sees that, he exposes that so he can direct her to her root problem. And he says, look, your problem, lady, it's worship. That's how it relates to worship. Now, that, that whole conversation about temple and worship, it's not a side issue. It is the issue. Jesus sees that her thirst, her problem with the many husbands, is actually all about worship. Now, why is worship the key issue? Let me quote to you from the late writer David Foster Wallace. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. By the way, he's not a Christian. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. You worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, end, you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And you could probably add to that, worship relationships, and you will go through husbands, five, and the man you're living with is now, you see what I mean? That's where it's going, isn't it? In other words, you and I won't ever find meaning that satisfies until we get worship right. That's what Jesus understood. 
That's what he was directing the woman to. See, what we make ultimate in our lives, what we live for, is what we worship. Worship is not a uniquely Christian thing. In fact, everyone worships. And whether we look outside of ourselves or whether we look inside of ourselves, that is what we worship if we make that our ultimate meaning-making. But as I said before, whether we look outside or inside, everything will disappoint because none of those things were meant to replace God. You see? Everything else we worship, whether from outside or inside, were not meant to be God and they will always disappoint. You see, you get worship right and suddenly things make sense. You get worship wrong and this is what God himself says. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. You think Jesus was maybe thinking about this passage when he talked to the woman? I think he was. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You get worship wrong. You direct it to something that was never meant to be God and it will never satisfy and it will never give you the meaning that you long for. That's where Jesus was going with this conversation. So, my final point. If you want meaning that cannot be destroyed, even by something like the Holocaust, meaning that won't ever disappoint, in fact, that gets better with time, that will last for eternity, then listen to Jesus. Better yet, come to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the God who made you. And he loves you. Relationship with Jesus is actually the source of living water that really quenches our inner thirst. Yeah, that's what he was offering the Samaritan woman. And that is what he is offering you today. And you know, he's done everything possible so that you can have this living water and you can have it for free. Because it cost him everything so that we could have it. You know, towards the end of John's biography of Jesus, John's gospel, the same one that we read from, Jesus was once again thirsty. He once again asked for a drink. Only this time it wasn't at a well, it was on a cross. Remember though, I said Jesus is God, right? He is. So why would God who made the universe, God who is powerful and infinite and all, know, why would God need a drink? I mean, why would God get thirsty? Why would God be crucified? Well, John's answer, the Bible's answer is he did it for us, for you. You see, the crucifixion is God's willing sacrifice of himself to show us what kind of a God he is. That God was actually willing to become a man to reach men and women. That God was willing to die for our sins in our place to give you what you can't earn, forgiveness, eternal life. He's willing to sacrifice himself for those he invites to worship him, right? Which means that he alone is actually worthy of our worship. Because let's compare God and everything else that you might worship. You see, if you live for your country, king or country, if you live for politics, whatever cause it is, or if you live for your career, for your hobbies, even if you live for your kids, your marriage, guess what? They will always disappoint they won't die for you. Quite the opposite, everything we live for, they make demands of you. You have to sacrifice for them, right? You all know people who've made huge sacrifices for causes, careers. See, none of these things are 
infinite. And all of them are finite. All of them have an end. All of them are limited. And guess what? Here's the thing about finite things and finite people. Anything that is finite is needy. Anything that is finite is needy because it it can't self-sustain. Your career, your cause, your relationship, all good when needs are met, but when their needs aren't met, you are used, you are discarded, you're exploited. Every finite person or thing has needs and you're part of what meets their needs, right? And so they can never fully satisfy you and they certainly won't sacrifice themselves for you. I read this week about an Australian celebrity who spoke about her split with her partner after 13 years together and six kids, okay? That's a big deal. 13 years, six kids split. She said this, at some point we go, well, I have certain needs I want to have met and you've got certain needs and if the two don't combine and cross in the middle, why fight it and be miserable? So they went their own way. But that's how relationships work, right? You have needs, I have needs, we better meet meet each other's needs if we don't split. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is uniquely worthy of our worship because he is infinite and he doesn't need us. Wait, you might be thinking, hang on, is that a good thing? (laughs) No, no, think again, it is good. It's the reason why Jesus is alone worthy of our worship. He doesn't need us, which means for him, his love is not a transaction. He's not codependent. You know what codependency is? You love someone because you love that they love you. You need them to love you. You need them to... That, that's not Jesus. He doesn't need you. He loves you because he chooses to. He gives out of his infinite and inexhaustible well of goodness. He can give without ever needing anything in exchange. That is good news, isn't it? And that's why unlike anything or anyone else you live for, he sacrifices for you. He dies for you. He lives for you. He gives and gives and gives for you. And he can satisfy. And today he is offering you a meaning that nothing and no one can ever take away. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Friends, come to Jesus. Ask him today into your life. Ask him to forgive you. Make him the one you follow and live for. That's where meaning can be found. Now, if you want to do that today, that's not going to be probably a lot of you, but if it is you, then I'm going to pray now and I invite you to pray along with me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you offer true meaning and satisfaction. Thank you that you died for me and offer me forgiveness. Forgive me for living for and worshipping what can't ultimately satisfy me. Please come into my life and help me to worship you instead. Amen. Now, once again, we're going to sing. And then uh, if you've got questions, please post it on that link. We've also made available on that link a a second category. It's completely optional. If you want to find out more about Jesus, or maybe you prayed with me today, you're like, yeah, I I received Jesus, or I want to receive Jesus, 
um, and, and I'd love someone to, to just walk me through it. Um, then there's a separate category, the second box, really. You can just jot down your name and a way of contacting you, and we'll get back to you. It's completely um, um, confidential, so you, we won't share your details with anyone, but that's available for you as well. But yes, if you have questions, um, please go and post it, and I'll come back up after we sing this song, and uh, I'll try and answer some questions. Thanks. <laughs>